right, uh, just to let you guys know as we're talking about gospel communities, we have a brand new gospel community starting in Lompoc. Where's Christian and Courtney? This is Christian and Courtney Alf. Uh, there are new GC leaders. Uh, so if you are from Lompoc, you look for a GC, I know you're thinking, Lompoc? Who goes to Lompoc? Some people go to Lompoc, right? And so they are the new GC leaders. It starts March 12th, visual aid. It's on my hand. March 12th, 6.30, Tuesday night. So if you are interested and you are from Lompoc and you want a GC to get involved in, talk to them after the service. They'll be hanging around, ready to talk to you. All right, you can leave. You know how terrible it would be to have to sit here through me three times? I feel bad for Mikey and Cameron in the back. You're like, oh my goodness, that three times in a row, it's horrible. So well, and I don't put that on the video. So, so welcome to Element. Uh, if, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on Live. I'm moving really slow for you, Paul. Click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You get the sermon notes and the verses and all that. Now, also on the communion tables are these, are you smarter than E-Kid? We're doing this thing where we're trying to get adults and kids to memorize verses, and so we're doing a competition to see how much better you guys are, and you know what? You're not. You're horrible. You're horrible. They're easy. Okay, ready? Ready? Genesis 1-1. Okay, for the four of you that knew that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There you go. You got that? Just go in the back and give it to Christy, and you guys will get points. You got one. I'm walking slow, Paul. All right. Uh, one other thing to tell you about is uh, women's ministry tomorrow night is having a get-together. They're calling it Trader Joe's and UFC. It'd be cool if it was, right? You guys would be all sweet. Where's that? I want to go. Like when guys go do things, the girl's like, why can't we go do that? It's like, Trader Joe's and UFC. Sweet, I am there. Trader Joe's, UFOs, unfinished objects or unfinished projects that you have. So you're going to grab your unfinished project and you're going to grab something from Trader Joe's that's like your favorite snack or whatever. If it's two buck, Chuck, that's why you have so many unfinished projects. (laughs) Just letting you know. I can get two bottles for a box of cookies. I think I'm pretty... Whatever. So show up. They probably really enjoy it. I brought the two-buck chuck. Yeah, welcome to Element. Okay, so... Am I doing that? Oh, it's 6.30 tomorrow night. If you need directions, uh, talk to people in the Welcome Center. They'll tell you where the Whitakers live. That's where it's going to be held. Why don't you stand there? You're reading God's Word. Uh, we will get started. Yeah. Now we'll talk about Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as your people will be those who understand your providence and the great lengths that you have gone to to save your people, and that how all of our lives are underneath your care and your hand, and we can fully trust you for that. Amen. Have a seat. A lot of times I get accused of quoting a verse at the beginning that I never talk about again. Uh, And there are reasons for that, actually. Uh, I I don't want to treat you guys like a TV show that thinks everybody's dumb where they, like, have this twist and a concept. And then they come back and then they try and explain it to you, like, 
three times throughout the show because I think you're just stupid. I don't think you're dumb. I usually quote a verse to begin with. Sometimes it encompasses almost everything that we're talking about together. Sometimes it's a piece of something that's in there. And I think you guys are smart enough to figure out where that goes. So that's why I don't always just, hey, here's a verse, and then I talk about you're smart enough to figure it out. All right, so don't go around telling your friends I'm an idiot, whoever that was that said that. Actually, I don't mind. You can tell me whatever you want. I don't care. <laughs> so the verses I started, it's, I'm not going to talk about it again, but it encompasses almost everything that we talked about this morning. So kind of think about it in those terms. Uh, today, this is Genesis week 56. Uh, we hit a new turning point in the book of Genesis that's going to take us all the way through the end. Today we start and we get to a new guy called Joseph. Now, if you talk to a lot of people who know the scriptures, they have their top 10 list of their favorite people in the Bible. Joseph is usually in people's top 10. They love him. So today you're kind of almost get two messages. I'm going to mix them together so they make sense. We all come down to understand that God was and is always pointing to Jesus and understand God's providence in the midst of that. There are a lot of amazing things about Joseph's narratives and life I think are really important for you to see, really cool for you to see. So I'm going to kind of start sensationalistic, looking at some symbolism between Joseph and Jesus, and then we'll get practical as we go. Okay, the Bible has three types of application to our lives. The first one is called the primary application. That is where you take the historical narrative just at face value. The second thing is called a practical application. That is, what is God saying to us? How do we apply that to our lives based upon this text? The third thing is what is called a prophetic application, and that does how does this event that we're reading fit into God's ultimate scheme regarding Jesus, because everything in the end ultimately is about Jesus. And teachers usually have two different bents. They usually go all practical, which is like me. When we take anything in the scriptures, I'm always practical. It's like, how does this relate? And there are other preachers who look at stuff and they go very spiritual. They go very symbolic, like everything means something else in the scriptures. So because I am very practical, the first things we're going to start talking about today, looking at Joseph and how it relates to Jesus, is kind of a stretch for me. It's kind of hard because I am, I am so practical. Because the scriptures have things in them that are called types and models, where one thing references something else, how the Bible fits together to tell the story of God. And these types and models are not always tight. But if you read something, and again, it happens later, and it happens later, and it happens later, a lot of times these things will actually go together to tell you something's going on. As an example, in Genesis 1, uh, God brings the waters back, and the dry land comes out. In Genesis chapter 8, after the flood, God does the same thing. The dry land starts to reappear. It's almost the same wording in Hebrew, those two things. When you get to uh, the Exodus, and God parts the water on the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across on dry land, it's almost the same wording. When you get to the book of Joshua, and God holds back the Jordan River so the Israelites walk across on dry land into the promised land, it's almost the same wording. And that's meant to tell you these three things go together to tell you that God is always preparing the land for his people to live in. God is good on his promises. That's what it's there to tell you. And when you read through the scriptures, you will see lots of things that are always pointing to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus even talks about this in in Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, Jesus meets a couple of guys. They're walking on this road to a town called Emmaus. They're talking about all the stuff that just happened in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, where he is laid in a tomb. And this is what Jesus says to them in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, after filming them out. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, and that's the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, it starts with 
Genesis, and all the prophets, that's everything else, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he shows them all the stuff throughout the scriptures that referenced him. Now, you have to understand that not everything has dual meanings. If you think everything in the scripture all has dual meanings, then you just end up really weird, and we don't want that for you. A good rule is you look for the obvious. You don't get lost in all the subtleties. Like some people are like, you know, Jesus went down to the water. What does went down to the water mean? Let's parcel that out. Well, sometimes it just means Jesus went down to the water. It's okay. You know, maybe he was thirsty. I don't know. Maybe he needed a bath. I don't know. He went down to the water. So as we start Joseph, okay, I'm going to give you some parallels between Joseph and Jesus and how looking at Joseph's life can help you better understand the Messiah and what he was doing and, and when he came. All right? Okay. Okay. So Genesis ends with Joseph. It's very important that it does because I think it's pointing to all this stuff. Number one, I'm giving you 19 things. They're not going to be up there behind me, but it is in the notes if you want to grab one. Number one, Joseph was a shepherd. Joseph was a shepherd. One of the almost the first things you see of Joseph is he's pasturing this flock. So Joseph is seen as a shepherd. The almost the very first concept we have of God is of the good shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my Exactly. John 10, 11, Jesus comes and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Number two, Joseph is seen as pasturing and caring for the flock. A shepherd does this. A shepherd has watchful care. He has unworried devotion. Sometimes he has to sit in solitude. He has lots of patience. He has protection. And he has love that sometimes makes him even give his life for these sheep. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And again in John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Number three, Joseph was loved by his father more than all his other sons. Uh, the father loves Jesus more than he loves anything else, more than he loves you. I know it might be shocking to you, but yes, he loves Jesus more than you. Matthew three seventeen, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. John ten seventeen. for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Philippians 2, 9, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Number four, Joseph was the son of his father's old age. This is not a stretch because God the Father, he is eternal. That's old. Old. John 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's old. Number five, Joseph was given a multicolored tunic. Uh, Some renditions will say a richly ornamented robe. Some scholars say it was a robe woven of one piece of material from top to bottom. It is seamless. When Jesus was crucified, he had the same type of robe. John 19 verses 23 to 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Number six, Joseph was hated by his brothers. Was Jesus hated by his brothers, the Jews? Yes, very much so. So what you see is Joseph not only manifests his father's love, but also his brother's hatred. Jesus, in the same way, showed his father's love and his brother's hatred. Number seven, uh, Joseph's brothers were envious. Now, a working definition of envy in a spiritual sense is that envy or jealousy is the failure to concede the right of God to bestow favor on whomever he wishes. So if you look at somebody and go, man, God can never love that person. Well, that's envy because God actually does love that person. Like when we say, oh, God can never love, I don't know, Marilyn Manson. I don't know, you know, country music people. I don't know, whatever, you know. (laughs) Whatever. 
God can because, because God can love whoever he wants, wants to love. And that's the, the Jews were jealous because of Jesus' relationship with the Father. As a matter of fact, Matthew 27, verse 18 says, For he, Jesus, knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. Number eight, Joseph is hated because of his words. So first they hate him because of his person, because he has a special relationship with his father. And second, they hated him because of his words, the things he said. They hated him for who he was and what he said. Same thing with Jesus. John 5.18, they wanted to kill Jesus for him calling God his father. John 6.41, it says they grumbled about him because he says, I am the bread of heaven. In Luke 4.28, and all the synagogues were filled with rage as they heard these things. These are the things that Jesus was saying. John 7.7, Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. This is one of the reasons why Jesus was rejected, because he pointed out people's sin in a unique way, and he lived the life that we were meant to live. And most people didn't appreciate the truth of Jesus' words or his life. I'll tell you, it hurts to hear the truth, but truth, when we hear it, is actually positive. It's like pain. Nobody like, anybody like pain? Unless you're weird. Okay. No, nobody really likes pain, but pain can be a good thing. If I touch something hot, my brain says, ooh, that's hot, and I pull my hand back. I was building something last week. Here comes the story, okay? And he had these two pieces of wood on the ground. They both, I, I built it wrong because so I had to pull it apart. So they both had nails in them. And, um, and um, so I got one over here, all the nails sticking up because I'm an idiot. And the other one over here, I'm pulling the nails out. And I lost my balance. like, woo! Like this, right? And, and this is like the slow-mo where you're like, oh, no! And you feel it just push the top of your shoe. You're like, no! And then, boom! And you're like, oh, no! And then it hits the top of your foot. No! Now, if I didn't experience pain, one, I wouldn't be freaking out. But two, I wouldn't have pulled my foot up. I mean, boom, and I'd show up this morning with a piece of wood stuck to my foot. I'd just look stupid. But, but the thing is, pain tells you, get your foot off that so you don't die. It doesn't in, you know, get all infected. And you, Pain sometimes is a good thing. And these are like Jesus' words to us. Sometimes it's painful to hear what he says, but it's like those words cut out this infection that sometimes we so want to follow the things we want to do. And Jesus says, no, follow what I want you to do. And so Jesus is hated because of his words. Um, yeah, that was a long one, wasn't it? Number nine. Number nine. The father, Jacob, sent the son to see about the welfare of his other children. You'll see this happen next week. The father, God, sends his son, Jesus, to see about the welfare of his children. Uh, number ten. The father sent the son, knowing there would be danger for the son. Is that true of Jesus? Yes, exactly. But the father is willing to send the son for the sake of his children. Number eleven. The son, who knows the danger, is still eager and willing to go. Is that true of Jesus? Yes, exactly, and Jesus did did go. Uh, the thing is, Joseph didn't consider his brothers his enemies, but his brothers, just like Jesus doesn't consider us his enemies, but his children. Uh, number 12, Joseph's brothers plotted to kill him. All right, did the Jews plot to kill Jesus? Yes, that's why we're here, okay? Uh, Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, And the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Mark 14, 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Luke 22, verse 2, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Number 13, Joseph's brothers sat by while he was in agony. Did uh, the Jews sit by while Jesus was in agony on the cross? Yes, yes. Number 14, Joseph was stripped of his robe just like Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Number 15, uh, Joseph was betrayed by a brother named Judah. 
What's interesting about that is they take Joseph and they throw him in this pit. This is Judah's idea. Then they sit around and, and then they eat and food and then they decide, oh, we'll sell him into slavery instead so we can make some money off him. But he's betrayed first by a brother named Judah. Now, Judah and Judas are essentially, they're the same name. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, you have the book of Jude in the New Testament. Jude's name is actually Judas. Verse 1 in Greek of the, Jude says, my name is Judas. Okay, but you know, we're like, oh, we can't have any Bible named Judas because Judas is scary. He's a terrible guy. He ruined the name forever. It's, it's just like, do you know the name Adolf? It used to be in the name of like princes and kings. And as soon as Adolf Hitler came to power, it's like the Germans are like, yeah, we're not naming our kids Adolf anymore. We're done. And it's that kind of thing. And so no one's named their kid Judas anymore. So name them Judah instead. But it's essentially the same name. And Jesus is betrayed by a brother named Judas. Uh, number 16. Joseph's brother, Reuben, returns to the pit, and the pit is empty. After they throw him in there, they pull him out and sell him into slavery. Reuben intends to come back and pull him out, but he comes back, and that pit is empty. The same thing, Luke 24, verses 1 through 3. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus raised from the dead, the cave, the tomb, the pit is empty. And I think just like Joseph, little did anybody know that because the pit was empty, the story is now far from over. Just like Jesus raises from the dead and the strut is just the beginning of the story. Uh, number 17, substitutionary blood was presented to the father. After they take Joseph and they sell him into slavery, they kill an animal, they put blood all over Joseph's robe, and they give it to the father and say, your son died. Now, Jesus, in the same way, presents his substitutionary blood for you and I as his children to the Father. Number 18, Joseph's father mourned his death, mourned his death, just like the father mourned Jesus' death. And number 19, Joseph became the savior of the known world in a very real sense, and just as Jesus Jesus is the savior of the world for all time. Now, here's my practicality in all this. I think, yes, this is interesting, and God knows what he's doing. And one of the favorite stories by, by the Jews, they love this narrative, but it was all pointing to the Messiah. And you could probably go on like this for days, hundreds and hundreds of things about Joseph's life that points to Christ. But one thing I want you to realize, that as much as Joseph was righteous, as much as he loved God, as well-intentioned as Joseph was in his life, Joseph still died. All right, all these parallels between him and Jesus and his morality does not save him from death, which all the more points to his need and our need for a savior. Because God sent Jesus not just to be the savior of the world, but to save men's souls, yours and mine. And so what you see, these things in Joseph, this is an issue of what we call providence. It's providence. If you look at the scriptures without taking providence and God into mind, you might walk away thinking some weird stuff. Oh, the Bible tells me how to sell my brother into slavery and make some money. Ooh, the Bible tells me, like Jacob, how to get four wives and have 13 kids in a crazy household. You know, if you pull away from God, that's all that you get. But when you understand God in the midst of it in providence, you realize God works all of these things out to his glory and his people's joy. So when you get to Genesis 37, which you can open to if you have a Bible, you hit Joseph. And it starts off looking at this relationship with Joseph's dad and his brothers, and it looks how God redeems all of these bad circumstances. And, and I think Joseph is amazing, too. I, I really dig him, right? I mean, creation gets two chapters. Joseph gets 13. So there's, wow, right? But the one doctrine that summarizes his life and ours is the issue of providence. The reason I started with those 19 different parallels in Joseph to Jesus is that Joseph probably didn't see all of those things in his life. You know, in the midst of all he's going through, he doesn't, he doesn't see those kind of parallels because providence is hard to understand when you're in the middle of it. This is why you should read the scriptures so you can see what God is always doing. And you should also hang out with other Christians because you can see how God is working things out in their lives. Providence works like this. It, you see God's seen hand. 
Okay, providence is seen when God does miracles. This is like Sarah, 90 years old and having a baby, God speaking out loud, Jesus showing up to beat up Jacob all night long. It's healings, but God doesn't always work like that. Today, God mostly is seen in his providence of his invisible hand where God is active and good, and we just don't see it as plainly as a miracle. But God works through pain and hardship and joy and love. God determines where we'll be born, what gifts we have. He works quietly but consistently through subtle promise. And providence is God made everything and everyone, and he's still involved, and he rules over history. We sin, we have vestiges of free will, but God ultimately works things out to his will because his will is always freer than our will, and that is providence. And this distinguishes the God of scriptures from all other religions. You have to understand, we worship Jesus. We do not worship some vague God wandering off somewhere that, that forgot about us and let's whine really loud. We worship Jesus sitting on his throne, ruling creation with great personal and vested interest. We do not believe in deism, that God made the world and then went on vacation and left us here. We do not believe in pantheism, which is like, oh, everything's God. It's like the Star Wars theology. God's in the rock and the tree and in you. Hmm. Right? I mean, there's some people who are like, oh, I never need to go to the church because nature's my church. I'll hug a tree. I'll run around naked. I'll ride bikes because cars are evil. And, and you're lost because it's not about Jesus. You know, they, they believe the earth and God are the same thing, that God isn't creator. He is part of creation, the animals and the trees and the rocks and, and you. And you have to understand that if that was God, God can never rule that way because he would have no authority over creation because he would be part of creation. See, we're not saved through recycling. I have tons of green garbage cans in hell, okay? I, I love recycling, but, you know, hey, whatever. You know, Jesus is creator, not creation. Jesus is maker. He is not made. It's why we worship Jesus, because he can bring about providence. Providence. We do not believe in chance or, or luck or coincidence. We don't run around wearing lucky socks or, or lucky underwear that maybe we can control some outcome. No, we know where history has been. We know where it's going. It's going to Jesus. And this is not fatalism, like nothing we do ever really matters. No decisions we make matters. They do. It's why God lets us make them. We are significant in the fact that in God's plan, he chooses to use us in that. And God allows us to be involved in the changing of people's lives. It all fits together in his providence. So we worship Jesus, not chance or fate or luck. We believe in a God who rules and reigns over all of history, sometimes through miracles, but always through a hand of providence. And up until Genesis, you've seen mostly God work through his hand of miracles. Uh, At the end of Jacob's life, he starts to move to a hand of providence. Throughout Joseph's life, it is all a hand of providence. And the story really slows down when you hit Genesis 37. Because up to now, you've had thousands and thousands and thousands of years of life. In the last 13 chapters, you look at one guy and a little bit of Judah and a little bit of Jacob, but mostly this one guy, Joseph. And after God's been working in this family for centuries... Finally, a godly guy shows up. Now, he doesn't start off so godly. You know, he starts off as like a teenage brat from Montecito that's got a little too much stuff and thinks he's all that. That's, but, but he starts there, but he ends well. So we're going to briefly hit those first 11 verses in Genesis 37, then we'll bring this all together. So Genesis 37 starts like this. That's a prologue, by the way. Long, huh? Yeah, all right. Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob, and so we just finished looking at Jacob, and, and that, that's the idea of that. So if, if you're new, you haven't heard about it, go back and listen to all about Jacob, because when you get done hearing about him, you realize if God can love that guy, he can love me too. All right. So Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. And that's essentially Moses closing off Jacob's story and moving on. You know, Jacob's got 13 kids, 12 boys, one daughter. That house must have been crazy. 
Okay? Joseph, being 17 years old. So Joseph starts 17. He's mostly a good example. It tells you at 17 years old, you don't have to run around, smoke weed, and play your Xbox all day and drive fast while you're texting. You can actually be godly. In the scriptures, Daniel, Isaiah, Timothy, they're all godly young guys. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. It seems like when teenagers hear that verse, they only hear the first part. Let no one despise you for your youth. Yeah, I'm young. Get off my case, man. Don't despise me for my youth, buddy. But no one reads the second part. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So it's not just get off my back. It's do something. It's not young or old. It's an issue of maturity versus immaturity. So Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. All right, so they're out watching the sheep. Something happens. We don't know what it was, but Joseph apparently is a tattletale. Dad, they're not watching the sheep. They're flicking boogers and eating chocolate. Go out there and yell at them. Do something to those boys out there. Now, you may look at this and think, oh, tattletales are horrible. You're all tattletales, all right? We all are. If somebody irritates us or does something to us, what do we do? We talk to our friends about it, right? We're tattling on them. If you read my email update any given week, I'm usually tattling on somebody. This week it was the post office. Because <laughs> things just happen, all right? They, they just happen. But Joseph, Joseph is a little tattle. He, he starts as the runt of the litter. You know, he's bringing up the rear. He's a whiny rat. He ends well again. Verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. So Jacob comes in. Jacob doesn't help this situation at all. This is what's called the sin of favoritism. Jacob's life started this way, and now he's doing it in his own family. For Jacob, this leads to major conflict between him and his brother. And now Jacob becomes a daddy, does the same things. When you have kids, do not play favorites. Do not be like, oh, hey, sweetie pie, go get the idiot. It, it, it doesn't work. You do something for one kid, you do it for all your kids. Maybe in different ways. I mean, if you've got boys, you know, take the boys to get hot dogs, go play at the dump. For some reason, they like that. It smells bad, just like them, you know. You got girls, take them to Jamba, shoe shopping, something. But you do something with both of them. You train up a kid the way they should go, but kids are unique and different. You pay attention to that. Now, Joseph, he's born, he's born to a mother called Rachel. Rachel is the one wife that Jacob actually loved. And so he comes in, and he plays favorites and gives his son a coat. It's like having 13 kids, and you give one of them a bike and dessert, and the rest of them have to walk and eat crackers and water. All right? it's, this, this is favoritism. But also in the back step, you see Joseph also wears the coat. He doesn't be like, oh, my dad thinks I'm the best. Don't you? Bling, have you seen my jacket? (laughs) And he wears it around in front of his brothers. Now, some of you may think, oh, well, that's not so bad. That's because you were favored, all right? Let me tell you a story. One time, (laughs) I didn't tell this first service because my mom was here. (laughs) But it'll be on the video. One time, my brother and his friends are out playing baseball on the street. I'm like, I'm like five years old. Wee! I don't know what I'm doing. Bam, they smack me in the face with the baseball. I go, I'm oh! She gives me a spanking. It's like, well, get out of the way of the ball. They threw it at my face. Smack. What? They were trying to hit me with a tire iron. Well, get out of the way of the tire iron. That's the picture. All right. I love my mom. She's great. Redemption. Okay. I'm a tattletale, that's right. 
<laughs> but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. See, when a father favors one child, they don't hate the father. They hate the child that's favored. Verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So here's the favored brother. He gets a dream. God doesn't necessarily speak, but God shows Joseph something. And God elects Joseph to leadership. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Now, Joseph probably should have kept his mouth shut. If you dream, you are king of the world, and your brother is pumping your gas, you probably shouldn't tell him. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. That's like a king. I stood upright from all of you, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. Isn't that what all the brothers just want to hear? You're already favored, and now you're going to rule over me too, really? His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, because 17-year-old kids are stupid. And said, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. It gets better. Everybody bows down to me. Isn't that great? Have you seen my jacket? You know? (laughs) Anybody hate your brother and sister? Don't raise your hand. I'm just asking the question, right? (laughs) Now, their father never sets it up so that other sons accept this well. I mean, the dad set up conflict. He He gives Joseph a coat, a clipboard. Go check out on your brothers. Let me know how they're doing. But in the end, you've got to understand, God did actually elect Joseph to leadership. The brothers in the end hated God's election of Joseph to that leadership, but God can do whatever he wants. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? He's like, I'm your dad. I'll give you a whooping is what I'll do. I'll bend you over my knee. I'm not going to bow down. You will be bound over, and I'll take your coat. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the idea that, that Jacob kept the saying in his heart. He treasured it in his heart. And at the end of verse 11, you get another parallel to Jesus. Joseph shares his dream and his vision. No one understood, but Jacob remembers these things. Throughout Jesus' life, it's the same thing. In Luke 2, you know, Jesus becomes like a teenager. His family goes to Passover in Jerusalem, and, he, and they leave, and he ends up hanging out in the temple for three days. They can't find him. They go back and find him. What are you doing? I had to be my father's house. And it tells you in Luke 2.19 that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's the same thing that goes back to what, jo- what Jacob was doing to Joseph. He remembers these things in his heart. And that right there is your setup for Joseph's story. He has a tattletale with big dreams, but none of those big dreams work out the way that he thinks. Imagine if God came to you and said, the entire world is going to experience a famine, and I'm going to use you to make sure that people survive. You go, wow, I'm going to be great. This is going to be neat. Okay, what's my trajectory? How do I take off? How am I going to get there? And the next thing that happens to you is you're thrown in a pit. And you pull out and you're sold into slavery. And next thing, you're working as a slave or somebody, and they accuse you of a crime you didn't commit. So they throw you in jail for the better part of your youth. You would think either I got the wrong message, or God doesn't know what he's doing, or God's not in control of anything. But in the end, God was in control of everything because that's Joseph's story. See, Joseph walks this road of providence where God works about each piece as he wills. It doesn't mean that Joseph's decisions meant nothing. It's that God's plan will always come true fruition. And if I could take the next 20 weeks of Genesis as we finish this off and just cram it into your heads this morning, you would stand back in amazement of God's providence for his people and how God works everything out because that is the point of Joseph's life, this idea of providence. This is why when God calls you and I to give our lives to him, we do because we can actually trust him. It's for his purposes so our lives actually have purpose. Everything that you experience, everything that you have been through, 
It's for providence and purpose. Because God is not just maker of all creation, but he is Lord of all creation. And that includes you, and that includes me, and that includes Joseph. See, we, we trust God because God not only sees the beginning, he not only sees the end, but he sees the middle. And our problem is a lot, is you and I are in this place where we live in the middle. You know, you read the scriptures, well, there's the beginning. Oh, I got the scriptures, oh, I got the end. What's the middle? The middle is us. The middle is where we're living. And we can never understand in the middle what we're actually going through. And this is Joseph's life. You know, he, we, we stand on the backside of it and we say, oh, look at these 19 things that parallel between Joseph and Jesus. How amazing for Joseph. No, Joseph's life stunk for most of it. He lived in the middle where you and I live. And we must be a people who understand that God is the God in the middle as well. He's not just the God the beginning and the end. He's the God that we trust for every peace and purpose of our life. Everything we've been through, everywhere we're going, it's all in his hands. And so we trust him. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. Because communion, I mean, in the middle of communion, it didn't, it didn't seem like that was all that great. Oh, look, Jesus just died. Last supper, boom, crucified. What do we do now? Right? That, that's what happens. And yet in the end, Jesus rises from the dead and forgives our sin, raises us into new life. That is the amazing thing, is that in the middle of that, no one understood it. God did, because God was in the middle. And when you take communion, you break that cracker like his body is broken for us, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, you remember, remember that God is a God of providence and grace, and God is a God who is in the middle of where we are today. The band's going to come up, and they're going to do a couple songs. And as they do, I would invite you guys to sing these songs with them, uh, to take communion. But if you need prayer, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. Maybe you are living your life and you feel like, man, I am like stuck in the middle. You know, I, I want to see all the great providence that God wants to do in my life. But we almost never see those things in the middle of it. We almost never see these things. And this is why we trust God to do what he is going to do because he brings about things in his time, in his way for all that he knows it needs to be. We simply need to be people that trust him for that. I mean, again, if I could just take the next 20 weeks and just cram those together for you in a nice little ball and have you eat it, you'd be like, oh, my goodness, look at what God is constantly doing. Because God really is amazing in all of that. Um, we give because God gave so much to us. Give me something part of our worship. So there are uh, offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. And there's some food in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat and meet somebody. Hopefully this week you can sit down with somebody. Maybe talk about God's providence. Maybe, you know, the things you've seen God do in somebody else's life, your, your life in the past. And maybe you're in a place now and you just be like, I don't know what God's doing right now with me. I have no idea. But you know what? God is doing something. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean he's not doing something. Because he is the God of providence and goodness and grace. And everything sits in his hands. And we can be a people who trust him for that. We can walk in great confidence because God is a God who holds all things in his hands. Um, I would encourage you to be a people who encourage those around you to understand that and live in the same way that even though we are, as I said, in the middle, you know, God is a God who isn't stuck in the middle. Beginning, middle, end, all of fruition, all in the person of Christ. And we can be those who trust God for all that we have been through and all that we are going through and all that we will go through because he is the God of providence. Let's pray. This morning, Father, I thank you for being a God that is fully trustworthy. And so often there are times in our lives where we think that maybe you're not so much. You've forgotten about us or you left us somewhere. You don't see the plight that we're in. And yet you do. And yet you do. That there has not been a moment where you have not had your hand upon our lives. 
Father, I ask that you would help us to understand that you are not just the maker of the creation that we live in, but you are Lord of the creation and that you are Lord of our lives as well. And so I ask that today you would take us and refocus our minds around the issue and idea of providence, that we can trust you in our middle and that our lives would be lives that bring you great glory because when you are greatly glorified your people receive so much joy and so have our goal not be about our joy but about your glory and about trusting you and understanding all that you are doing that you are never a God who has taken your hands off and just walked away but you are the God who is constantly, constantly moving and shaping all of creation to where you intend it to be. That you are Lord of all creation of heaven and earth. And I ask that our lives would be those who reflect that providence and goodness and grace. So that you are highly lifted up and highly praised. And that we, on the back end of that, do receive goodness and joy. Have us trust you for all that we are going through. Have us honor you in all that we are and all that we do. We ask this in your son's good and gracious name. Amen.